Welcome to Vector. Three, two, one, action. Hello everyone, this is Peter Gregorio. Welcome to the Vector Interview Podcast. Each episode focuses on a different artist. We meet in person and have an in-depth discussion about life, art, and the concepts behind their work. Today's episode is with the New York-based artist, Jerry Kearns. Kearns can be described as an artist, a cultural activist, and a teacher. Right now, you can check out his solo show called Blam, which is being exhibited at Frosch & Co. Gallery in New York City until June 6th. I will include links in the notes. Go and see it. His work is described as psychological pop paintings that represent a multidimensional quantum universe, juxtaposing varied modes of representation. Presenting a visual mashup that highlights certain iconography expresses American belief structures. Composition rife with conflict, questioning, contradictions, and intrigue. Depicting iconic figures sourced from Western popular culture engaged in perpetual power struggles. His characters fluctuate between protagonists and antagonists in a narrative that reflects our own constructions of reality, a matrix of thought where time and space are condensed and presented in a single tense moment. Over the last 40 years, he has participated in countless exhibitions and cultural projects across the Americas, Europe, and Asia. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Art and Auction, Art Forum. His paintings are in collections at the Museum of Modern Art, the Brooklyn Museum, the Whitney Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the National Gallery in Berlin. Yes, he has accomplished. He has worked hard and consistently over the years. And at heart, he is a cultural activist and sees art as a function of change. In his own words, Kearns wants to make art be a part of telling the story that we currently live. He says, I decided to take a clue from the counterculture of the 1960s. I decided to intervene, to edit, and compose another view of the reality generated by mass culture and fine art. I thought artists could function as witnesses by giving testimony. From the review of my work, I adopted the term psychopop, thinking of my images as conceptual art expressed in painting. I began to think about mainstream media as deception. Not only do we get most of what we know from media sources, most of that is a lie. In the spirit of his questioning of social and psychological landscapes, his work is a commentary on American and Western culture and themes. He ruptures our collective narratives through the unclear identity of the hero and villain, the victor undetermined. His technique is partially psychological, viewing art as a healing and even religious experience. He helps us as individuals to question our own schematic formulations of the world around us. This discussion was recorded in New York City on May 9th. The first half was at the Frosch & Co. Gallery, where he's currently having his exhibition. I want to give a thank you to the gallery director, Eva Frosch, for letting us use the space. Keep in mind, there's about seven minutes in the middle of the recording where the sound went out on one of the mics. Although the sound quality drops, I thought it was important to present the entire dialogue. 
The second half was recorded in his studio in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. This episode is dedicated to the memory of his life partner, the singer and songwriter, Nora York. Welcome, Jerry Kearns. The day after pot legalization day and working class revolution. Welcome to Vector. East Broadway, New York City, Chinatown. This is Jerry Kearns. Uh, we're in New York City at uh, Frosch and Company on uh, East Broadway on the Lower East Side, Chinatown. Uh, Peter Gregorio and I here, we're going to chat a little bit about it. Something or rather. We have no idea. Tell me about this exhibition. This exhibition, uh, it's a series of eight uh, four feet square paintings that I worked on um, probably the oldest one got started about six, seven years ago. And I would work on, the, these are kind of smaller paintings for me. And I would work on these in between large pieces and exhibitions and work on them for a while. And then uh, my way of working is to work on something for a period of time, uh, put it aside, start another one, uh, take it to a certain point till I get three or four of them going. And then uh, my desire is to end up with a layered image that suggests different locations, physical and different periods of time, um, different sets of, re of evolving relationships, which are almost like in a dreamlike state. And then um, move from there. And so I'll work on a couple layers and, and then <clears throat> look at the piece for sometimes a year or more and then it just comes to me like what the next layer should be. My goal is to not have a top of the head predictable set of relationships but to come up with relationships that are sort of, as I said, sort of dreamlike. There's a sense of intentionality, a sense of something specific happening, some change going on but you're not aware of exactly what that is or how it will play out. Is there an overall concept when you work on a whole series? Or do you have a starting point? I think in my body of work as a whole over the past uh, 30 some years, uh, my intention was to uh, make a kind of psychological portrait, if you will, of a, of a particular moment in history that I was part of and experienced, uh, either firsthand or indirectly. Uh, uh, so the idea was choosing this language which people associate with pop art. Uh, I, I didn't, I was certainly aware of pop art, but I didn't make the choices to try to continue pop art. I had a more kind of conceptual notion of using uh, mediated imagery newspapers, cartoons, films, and so forth, because uh, in my mind that was the vocabulary, the visual vocabulary or alphabet, if you will, by which we recognize ourselves and, and by which we kind of construct ourselves out of, uh, <clears throat> out of our relationship to these images over time. So the, the goal always was to make this kind of uh, psychological, uh, dreamlike um, kind of image that stimulates one to consider juxtapositions without them being easily resolved. 
because that's what it feels like to me to be here. So there's a lot of information coming at us in all kinds of forms. It's very difficult in our historical period to resolve or order or, or, or categorize or break down these, this information. So I want the images to do something like that, to be sort of uh, almost like a movie that's not moving. It's almost like a still in a movie that's not moving. And there's a kind of film noir quality to them. When I started painting these, particularly the babies, it came to me, I just started thinking uh, in very elemental terms. One thing I knew, I didn't want any architecture which would locate a particular space quite easily, so there's no architecture here. The other thing I knew I wanted was I wanted the figures to be somehow in suspension, floating, moving through space in a kind of unpredictable way. So I started with that idea. I, I, the, the babies came into the scenario because in some way, you know, they're such, so loaded in terms of how we read them and understand them and, and emotionally uh, respond to them and so forth. So you put a baby floating in the air, raises a lot of questions about stability and what's gonna happen to the baby and, and so forth. And to me that, that uh, is a lot like what it feels like right now. A lot of us are just sort of suspended in the air, feeling in a way there's a new, there's a new self out there in, the, uh, in front of us, but we don't know what the shape of it is very well yet. It's very almost impossible to figure out because the overall context is in such flux right now. Uh, that, so the idea of, of kind of flux, a kind of changing, a new beginning, filled with some danger and not knowing. Uh, so thematically, that, that's kind of, want to create that kind of image uh, for people when they come in. You know, I, it's kind of an emotional response as much as an intellectual response that I'm after. Wow, there's so much in there with what you just said. Let's see if I can remember. <laughs> Would All you right. like me to give shorter answers? No, no, okay. you're doing great. Okay. Perfect. Longer, the better. Just okay. be organic. Well, I mean, when I think of floating babies, I think of 2001 Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. the last scene, right? Say that again, Peter. I, when I think of floating babies, yeah, think I think of 2001, of 2001 because totally. that was the, at the end of the movie, that was like the new being that was created by the, yeah. um, I also yeah. think of Italian Renaissance. Period. Yeah, so do I. So it's a kind of archetypal, Yeah thing, right? Yeah. And then I think about artificial intelligence or post-humanism. Yeah. Like what are we, yeah. what is this drive towards improving technology and biotech and genetic engineering and like yeah. technology is advancing and where is this, what's happening, yeah. where is this going to take us? I can't even believe how many changes in the last year. And there definitely is a sense of danger, obviously, because there's a pandemic. And also, it seems like there's always, for the last 20 years, it always felt like, oh my God, technology is going to advance. And in the future, in the future, it's going to be really crazy. This is the first year where I felt like it's not in the future. You know? Now. Yeah, it's like actually happening now. Yeah. It was always like, oh, in 10 years, oh, in yeah. 20 years, in 2050. Yeah. But this year, it felt like, oh, we're in it started. Yeah, we are in it big time. Um, but I also feel like 
just knowing your past work too, it seems like from your perspective, you saw this change happening early on, like in even in the 80s, maybe even in the 70s. Yep. You know, it's easy to say like, oh, look at all the advancements now, but I imagine in that time period, it probably was very similar, plus there was the Cold War threat. Yep. So I guess every moment, maybe every time feels that way. I think I so. Know. Back to the beginning of what you were saying, uh, I did see 2001, yeah. um, you know, when it first came out many years ago. And uh, something about that stuck in me, you know, something about that baby image and, and that kind of technology in the future and all of those things kind of stuck into me from that film for sure. And I did, I, about seven or eight years ago, uh, went to Venice and went and saw the uh, great murals of, you know, of the, of, of the uh, Renaissance period. And there's something in that style of making these big bold images that are, uh, you know, they're, they're both, they're, we're drawing and painting are equal to each other in a way, like Leonardo smudged the edges and everything and developed that notion of realism, but a, a, a great deal of it had this sort of uh, clearly outlined uh, uh, three-dimensional shape uh, f floating in the illusion of another three-dimensional space and stuff. And I was quite taken by that, and I think somehow that worked into my head when I came back and, 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 and started these things. I was very aware, uh, very young, uh, you know, the, the late 60s, there are a number of things that are familiar to now. I mean, there, there was, it was like a sea change in culture going on uh, then that's similar to now. Everything seemed to be up in the air and nobody was quite sure where it was going to go and it looked like we had opportunity, like now there are opportunities for a really wonderful society. All of a sudden there's a potential for a progressive era coming in. At the same time there's like fascism right underneath the edge of it all. So the knowing and not knowing, the potential of, a, of let's say a baby image suggesting a potential future. At the same time there's a there's a danger that that can be corrupted and destroyed. Well, for me, that's kind of a metaphor for what the whole culture is like now. Uh, there's great potential, uh, and at the same time, there's great danger uh, uh, for destruction. And, you know, you have a global, uh, what was different in the late 60s than now, there's a global right-wing authoritarian uh, push going across the globe, right? That wasn't there. There wasn't that connection uh, on a global scale to this mass reactionary uh, movement. So that puts things more up, you know, and then you throw in COVID and these uh, existential th threats uh, like that, uh, and uh, you're really in a stew uh, as to how to go forward or what's, what's, the question of what's real and not real, that's central to our culture right now. Everything is, uh, up, you know, uh, the right wing. For the first time, what's very different now than then is that uh, Trump and, and his supporters, they have their own communication network. They don't need the mainstream. They don't want the mainstream network. They don't want to belong to the center. There's no push for them to 
join the center. They're trying to destroy the center and they have the apparatus and the potential to do that. And I think that lurks, I think we're all in many ways having experienced this last four years, there's a feeling about that in us, whether we're conscious about it or not, there's a sense that all of this could be wiped out uh, in, 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 uh, in a moment's notice. Uh, we came within a hair's breadth here of, uh, of an authoritarian, you know, we were moving straight towards fascism. If that January 6th thing had ended up differently than it did, and it was just a few steps away, or if all of those local Republicans didn't hold up against him, we would be in, in a whole other world right now with a f future that would be really kind of terrifying. So we're sort of on the edge of having almost been there and maybe almost coming away from it, you know. So I, I, I know that kind of reality filters its way into making a paint, for me to make a painting. Uh, I don't want to direct it, I don't want to directly image it like pictures of Trump or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't think that, uh, that that's a rich vein for, uh, for me anyway at this period of time. But uh, elements which uh, bring about the similar or evoke the emotions that we're experiencing in that context, I'm, I'm more uh, interested in that. Uh, that's basically, uh, there was one other part of your question I had in mind, but I've, I've lost it right yeah. now. Yeah. Well, we'll get oh, back I know, to just it. the oh, last yeah, part. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. You addressed the notion of change and uh, the speed of change in technology, and uh, it's phenomenal. If you look back at just, say, two, a couple of generations, let's say, the change that they experience in their lifetime, we experience in a year or two. You know, they can go, you could, they could get a, your father could get a job, there would be some support, maybe some union support. He could, if he worked and it worked out there, he could count on a whole lifetime of employment and security and, and, and so forth out of that middle, mid 20th century America. Uh, you know, Reagan and him, they all totally destroyed that and the technological push is making us having to deal with different uh, uh, definitions of reality in a, such a fast way that people are just overwhelmed by it. Uh, just on the gender question alone, just how much, uh, the, you, you look at television uh, 10, 15 years ago and look at television now, or look at uh, just regular magazines that are on the magazine stand, that the, the level and the amount of rapid change of consciousness that, that, that's implied by these images is 10, 15 times faster uh, than people had to deal with before. So you're sure. kind of, even if you're a young person at your age, you're, you're running after technological development. You can't keep up with the speed at which the world, you know, the world is, is reshaping and redividing itself uh, constantly, and it's on a kind of technological front and at a level which is very, uh, almost aristocratic. There will be the people who, who can handle that level of technological reality and live in that world, and there'll be these vast numbers who can't. And you can see that division. It's not only age division, but it's class and race and so forth are, are aspects of that. Um, a little, 
I'm a wealthy little white kid in the suburbs and I have a beautiful computer set up and I'm plugged into that from the very beginning. Or I live down here in Chinatown in one of these places that have 10 families in it and uh, the idea that this child is gonna have access to this culture, it's crazy. I mean, you know, it's just really, really. We don't really know the impact of it. Like in some ways, maybe it'll equalize things. We don't know. Like we don't know. Because somebody who is marginalized with no power or there's no way for them to advance because of their class or race in the past. Yeah. Maybe they actually, because of the technology, have the ability to kind of transcend that. Or maybe the people in power have more power. Like it's, I'm, it's like I'm not really sure. Maybe it's both, you know? It um, probably is multiple things, yeah. you know? Like it, it, things uh, tend to divide and splinter and take on multiple definitions, especially at this rapid uh, 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 speed of change that's going on. It's very hard, very hard to define what will happen. You, you do know, I mean, we, we do know that there is access to, access to information is access to power now in culture. Information is one, is one it's been weaponized. Uh, and the access to information, and uh, I mean, even in like the stock market or something, it comes down to the microsecond that billions of dollars are made and lost by computers that make decisions in a microsecond. Uh, level. Now, leadership, uh, political leadership and economic leadership that come together, they have access to all that technology uh, and uh, uh, vast portions of the population don't. Uh, I, I, I fear more and more splintering along the lines of access to information. You look at Trump, his whole ballgame is completely uh, corrupt information so that it's the kind of thing. I, did, I, I was re recently listening to an iPod thing about Hitler and how he came to power. And I swear to God, it's like Trump sat down or somebody read to him the various steps that took place over between uh, 1920 and 1933 when they, when, when they violently took power. But it's literally the same process that, that took place there that, that Trump uh, and Bannon and those people were trying to uh, put into place here. Uh, there's no center in the culture, nothing to hold on to. You know? I wonder if it's any different now than any other time. Maybe it's just that there's a way to communicate to the, your specific audience, and you didn't have that before, because there's no way to reach the like-minded people, but I wonder if they're always there. I mean. I was just thinking about what you said before about like exponential change and definitely right now it's overwhelming in a way. But there were times like if I think of the, I mean I was too young or not even born, but there was that time period between like 67 and 71 where things, and maybe you could tell me more, I feel like in that time period so much happened in the world. And in some ways, I feel like that was the beginning of what we thought America was ideal, that ideal of America after World War II, which kind of ruptured for the first time, because like you have the three assassinations happening in the same year, you have the Vietnam War. 
that must have felt similar to now in a different way because it was like this moment where everything cascaded in like a short period of time and then it in a way it, then it was like a numbness for a while and like well it was repression after that yeah. well, what happened uh, in, in some ways was you know you can start with the assassination of Kennedy and play forward and you had the conservative power structure began to clamp down through the 60s on changes that were going on uh, that weren't kind of cultural changes that were like kind of not stoppable, you know. And uh, it took them a period of time and it took the progressive movement a period of time to come to a kind of boiling point. And that point started, as you suggested, about the, in the late 60s, about 67, 68, it started in 66 with the campuses uh, in uh, Wisconsin, Columbia here, Berkeley and California. The campuses went up in 66 and found colleague with the civil rights movement and, and formed the anti-war movement. So you had these progressive movements which came out of that disintegration of the old order, World War II order that you're talking about. But they joined together at that period of time and that's when we became dangerous to the power structure. When the civil rights movement, when Martin Luther King came out against the Vietnam War uh, and, and also started to or, argue uh, not cultural issues around race but economic issues around race, that's when the power structure uh, pushed back. And, uh, Everything, as you say, everything erupted in 68, 69. And in 69, 70 there, they basically killed a, a great portion of the progressive movement. You know, Fred Hampton, the Black Panther Party, the, the riots in Los Angeles, the, the uh, shutting down. They really uh, started to push against the anti-war movement. This drove people underground into more radical positions. And it kind of worked in a way, right? Well, what happened, you know, they, they basically, the 70s, they, they clamped down in the late, in the 69, 70, and so, and, and the 70s was a period of uh, reestablishing the old order. Uh, and and uh, like everything was sort of driven underground, the left was seen as suspect. Uh, uh, not to be trusted. I mean, everything, it was sort of like Ronald Reagan's view, view of the world was to reestablish that nostalgic World War II culture. And he did that by shutting down all the unions, killing the anti-war movements, uh, the, and the, like in Chicago, killing uh, uh, most of the leadership of the Black Panther Party and so forth. So you had a, a beginning of a counter-revolution uh, and a cultural revolution yeah. because the issues that frightened people enormously uh, in the 60s was all of the questions of uh, cultural relationships and race, gender, and, and even class began to play an important role in it. But they, uh, that was the beginning of where we are now, that period of time, as you suggest. They began yeah. to shut things down and reestablish. And so we've had 40 years of this Reagan uh, trickle down, uh, government is the enemy, 
uh, 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 to throw power back to the money. And then Trump is Reagan played by the Joker. All right, so um, something you said before. Let's see, how do I get into this? So you, all this information is coming in, what we just talked about. You're growing up in this. There's something about we're artists, so somehow we respond to this and we need to communicate and make forms and visual analysis or research. I don't know, there's so many ways to look at it. And we have this need, so tell me about that. You know, get well, into that. The first thing to realize, and one of the things that I don't know is like say the Black Lives Matter movement now, what's growing within that uh, in terms of cultural groups? Like we, we formed in our time, we formed collectives and collaboratives and so forth, and we would work in relationship to various social movements and so forth, which I can talk about. Uh, so what I don't know is how strong is that now uh, in, in, among young artists and people. I don't hear it, but I'm not in the, uh, what I'm, I don't hear people talking about or see posters or anything or online of groups forming and stuff, but I would be fascinated to know that. But our experience was, first of all, there was a relationship between social movements and art that was long before it came to the mainstream art world. It began to enter the mainstream art world, uh, you could say, in the, in the mid late to late 70s and really went to flowering because of the Lower East Side starting around 1980. That scene that developed was much more uh, socially conscious and uh, aware than say what was going on in Soho, which was... Were you here then? I got to New York in about 77. How old were you around then? I was about 26. So what, all right, what brought you here? I hope I'm not cutting off your thought. No, no. Be, I, it, what, like I want to know what brought you here and where did you go in the city? Just like when I graduated yeah. from grad school, right? Yeah. You go to Bushwick, you go to yeah. Williamsburg. There's certain yeah. pockets yeah. of where you, the other people. That's right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, Lower East you, Side. Yeah. So it was Lower East Side. So what brought you here, and where did you come from? Well, it was. Uh, I had been going through my own evolution, uh, trying to come to some sense of what the relationship. Uh, would be between uh, an artist and the broader culture, what kind of relationship. I, I wasn't interested in just going and putting up art shows and galleries, particularly at that point in time. I'd been studying so much. I was studying the Frankfurt School, Otto Rank, and those writers who talked about art and psychology. It really fascinated me, the role of uh, art practice in evolutionary terms. What purpose does it serve? in evolutionary terms and revolutionary term, in revolutionary times, what shape does it take? What is its uh, socioeconomic relationships? Who supports it? Who does it serve? Those kinds of questions were very much in my head uh, from things that I, you know, growing out, of, coming up being a student in the 60s and all of that counterculture thinking and so forth. Uh, so it, you were it, in that? You were like I was a student. 
and uh, it was happening it was in, all around life. me, all around me. And where were you? I was in I was a student in Sa in Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara, okay. And we spent a lot of time in Berkeley, and I saw a lot of the emerging Black Panther movement, the free speech movement, all of those things. I wasn't a participant; I was uh, like in the audience. You know. Were you studying art? I was studying or, art, but I always art. had a uh, a kind of uh, uh, interest in the kind of social awareness. So I had a kind of social consciousness. I grew up in the South in a lot of poverty, and I was in kind of the buffer zone between black and white Southern culture. And so I had a kind of innately built into me an interest in that. And, and when in school, I kept trying to get to a place where I could see, because it wasn't in the curriculum at all, but where I could see a connection that art might have to something larger than just making things for rich people. I mean, like, what's the purpose of this, you know, on a survival level, and uh, what's the role of creativity uh, writ large, you know? Uh, and that led me to being, thinking more about connecting with uh, uh, movements and organizations and people that uh, had an interest in how the culture changed. They were at the edge of where change takes place. And I was attracted to like, where's the conflict? Where's the edge? And I moved toward that. So uh, in, the, in the mid 70s, I, uh, I became aware that things were going on in New York that were like the, uh, the um, uh, New York, New Yorican cafe I had heard of, uh, and, and that was a play. It was mainly poetry and writers and, and progressive thinkers. And uh, there was a group called the Young Lords Party, which is Puerto Rican liberation uh, movement. Uh, there were various kinds of leftist remnants of uh, 60s and 70s leftist organizations uh, floating around in the city. And uh, I was attracted to hear, to hear what they had to say and w what they were doing. And there I, I met uh, Amiri Baraka, the poet and, and, and writer, and he was part of forming a, a several different groups, a, a groupings of people trying to do culture in churches and civil rights movement things that were going on in Brooklyn. I got involved in uh, an organization called the Committee Against Fort Apache, which came out of the South Bronx and opposed the Paul Newman movie because it presented uh, African and Puerto Rican people as kind of savages. And you know, Fort Apache is what they call the police station. And uh, you know, we, I got a sense of a national campaign there, how media works. Uh, in that movement, and that really fascinated me. I could see ways in which culture or art or, or an artist could directly influence and input something that was actually changing right now, a conflict that was going on right now. I, I joined, uh, through Baraka, I joined a group over in Brooklyn called the Black United Front in, in a support committee. This is uh, 78. <clears throat> and uh, there were the were same thing that's going on now about police killings of, of uh, citizens. Exactly the same thing. Exactly the yeah. same thing. It's just another moment in time for that. And I went and joined, and uh, that was really uh, an extraordinary learning experience for me and uh, what I could do as a photographer. I, I took. Uh, photographs of, of victims of police brutality and would go to court. Yeah. 
So that's go to when court. you first came here. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Oh, that's why I didn't want to go to the art world. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to see how I could be an artist, right on, right at the edge of social change. So one of the things I would do is I would be, uh, uh, I would go to court and they would bring a case against the cop for brutality, and I would be one of the witnesses, and they would show my images and stuff. We did calendars and books and. So health. would you actually? Hear something and run to grab your camera and run to. Well, I knew because I was part of the uh, uh, group that was okay. organizing the demonstrations and stuff, so I knew where and when they were going to be and so okay. forth, and so I would always be there. You know, th that was really fascinating. Doing uh, temporary exhibits, poetry reading, readings, music events, things like that. It must have been an amazing time in a way because whenever you have poets and artists and photographers and activists, there's so much... Um, yeah, no, there's like a, a cauldron of experiment and, and an energy for change and stuff that was in, the, in that atmosphere. Uh, and um, I would not argue or say that being actively involved in a moment-to-moment -moment social movement, it doesn't lead to reflection. It doesn't lead to deep, reflective, studio-type art-making. It's, it's of the moment you're responding to an event, to a situation. Uh, imagery and poetry and these things are more like a driver or an organizing tool. And there are things about that, and uh, that's why I said before, what is art in a, in a revolutionary situation? How is it different in, 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 than in a peace full situation and how, if it gets involved, if an artist gets involved in social change, it, it, it's a completely different approach uh, to yeah. the, the role of what you're doing and, the, and what you're doing, how it serves the culture. So I, I wouldn't argue that that's the place one would always want to be for the most creative possibilities, but it, it can be for moment. periods of time, you know, for periods of time it can be. Because you end up in a, in a way, I discovered there after four or five years, like that Dylan song, you know, you got to serve somebody sometime. Everybody's got to serve somebody sometime. You find that if you're in a, or, you're, you're organized that way, uh, you are serving particular political interests and, and people's uh, own ambitions and so forth are all part of the mixture, you know. And they can only last a certain period of time, like Occupy Wall Street, yeah. right? Like it peaks yeah. and it has to splinter. Yeah. And then, then you start to see the tethers of that. Yeah. And maybe it takes a few years yeah. to see how it enters. And now That's right. you, a lot of the people, I imagine, who are involved and some of the people trying to change the situation now of what's yeah. happening, yeah. kind of were rooted in that moment, yeah. right? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, things take a lot of time. It, it takes a period of time. Now that cauldron of experimentation and social change, it worked its way into mainstream art as, uh, starting in the late 70s, mid to late 70s. I mean, the late 70s and the 80s, that's where yeah. I grew up, right? And right. that was the art I looked at. Right. And I mean, it was definitely in your face out there. It was like yeah. loud. It yeah. was like directly responding to what was happening. Yeah. yeah. That was the world I grew yeah. up in, you know. So, but I was a young 
kid. Yeah, but exactly. Here, you know. These are these are the the, the uh, students. These are these are the people who were teenagers in the '60s, and they matured in the '70s, came to New York to be artists, and they naturally began to do things like taking some of the uh, models of organization that were in the social movements and begin to apply it to the fine arts. And so you had uh, groups that developed in like group material, collab, uh, political art documentation. There were about five, six groups here. That were they all in the same, they're all on the right side? Or primarily everybody. Were there everything like exhibition was, venues or more just like meeting centers? Or? There were, everything, uh, there were different ways to do it. Like uh, group material was basically five people who, who opened a storefront and instead of making their own art, they brought the art that was made by the people in the neighborhood and put it into the storefront. So there was this idea that the artist uh, is not uh, a, a unique original inventor, it's more of a synthesizer and an editor who recognizes what's going on in the culture and brings that into a new definition. Uh, and so the whole Lower East Side, there was a place called El Borico, which was a huge uh, a public school that was taken over and divided up and you had all kinds of alternative cultural uh, organizations and spaces. And, and where was like the kind of mainstream art world at this moment? Soho. And there was the Upper East Side, right? That's always been there. Well, there's the, there was the Blue right. Chip Upper East yeah. Side galleries. But Soho was the kind of what Chelsea is now. Soho is what, uh, very much like what Chelsea is now. Soho was, was uh, minimalism and conceptual art, and it was kind of moribund. I mean, it was very quiet. It, it wasn't much energy feeling there. And all the energy, all of a sudden, that was going on over in Soho, the kind of mainstream art that was... But they're so close. Louis Sanzo, exactly, right there. Exactly. It's not yeah. like yeah. way deep in Brooklyn and no. then Chelsea. No, no I, I was mean, very close. So then. it must, there yeah. must have been... All right, so go on. No, that's I'm just right. trying yeah. to set the... the yeah, there was the, interaction in, in the mainstream quick... And it, it's misleading to think that all of these people that were part of all these collective groups and everything didn't want to be mainstream artists. Most of us did want to be artists in that sense. Of course. So, yeah. uh, Soho came over and raided the place, right? I mean, the galleries of Soho began to raid the place and knock off names and people, and then you begin to have that so kind of art. It started to integrate, or were they more marketing? Offering? Marketing. They, they were, were taking people and turning them into names and commodities and stuff. And I, was there any good out of that, or it well, did it kind of kill it? I think it's a natural part of the way culture it's just develops. The way it works. Yeah, I just think in a capitalist system, which yeah. is a commodity system, you they co-opt. Uh, revolution, the ability of capitalism at its larger scale is its ability to co-opt revolution, uh, like the Black Lives Movement. Uh, it, it's rapid, almost instantly, you can see Fast it in the galleries, right, with yeah. all the young African-American artists and so forth. It's like a flood. And, 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 and uh, that period of time between revolutionary thought and co-optation is so reduced now. Uh, and, and what happens is that the, the commercial system makes a certain selection of the cauldron that's developing 
And that becomes art history. They, they shape it, they edit out certain things that are, that are uh, uh, not commodifiable and as uh, readily. But we can commodify anything in this culture. Yeah. I don't, you know, you can commodify Robert Smithson's uh, mirrors and dirt, you know, I mean. It, Instead of like say, a gallery taking from that and being like, oh, that's new, let's take that. There must have been people who were in that and they were truly authentic and they kind of formed galleries that grew. Like I know a lot of the nonprofits that started were probably so raw, but they really developed into full-blown institutions. I wonder if that was any better or if it wound up being the same thing. Uh, I think they're, because we exist in a certain context, they're necessarily like a deck of cards shuffled shuffle together. Some groups, a group that I was in was called Political Art Documentation, and uh, we were more, we, the people in there had been more involved in social organizing, so there was a kind of momentum there to do things outside of. What we tried to do was co-op the mainstream, to, to turn yeah. it around. We, we tried to use, we, we organized a, a big event in 1984 that was nationwide, about 150 galleries and community spaces all across the country uh, opposing uh, uh, U.S. involvement in Nicaragua. Uh, and uh, it was called Artist Call, and it became a really huge event. Uh, and we had the help of Lucy Lepard and Clay Sodenberg and uh, what's his, you know, I'm sorry right now, I can't think of them. But a, a bunch of her people who had really established reputations within the system worked with us to open the doors to the system for, for this period of time of uh, making a social uh, comment with, with the art. And Leo Castelli's gallery, for example, uh, because of Olinberg, let us do a show there. We did a show, and we would do shows in schools and churches and mainstream galleries. And we, and we saw ourselves as trying to move between the two polarities and bring uh, it together in some way. I mean, it sounds like it works, like it, it actually is working. Time, a lot, a lot came from what we did. Uh, it's a very interesting period of time on that level. We're talking now about from between 78 and 85. Uh, that was a I mean, that's a long period of time. What do you think shuts it down? Is it just like people get, you know, just real, like, is it just life stuff happens? Exactly. You know, like people get married or people have kids or people, or is it, was there, was there something kind of pushing it back down? Well, there or, was, there was, yeah. uh, there was pushback, and it, it happened in uh, various ways, like the, the National Endowments to the Art, uh, you know, famously shut down Andres Serrano's uh, uh, grants, a number, uh, I, I can't, some of the names are escaping me at the moment, but there was a pushback from the government to cut grants to spaces and artists who were doing things that were... Uh, when they used to give money to artists, right, back then? Initially there was uh, artist grants. I think it, it started in the 70s, and Jimmy Carter's uh, gave a lot of impetus to, to the National Endowment to the Arts. Yeah. And that's how all of these uh, uh, 
uh, you know, printed matter, Franklin Furness. Yeah, all the ones we know about. Exodar, that they all came out of that movement and they all were initially funded but with, with small grants from the government. And then, and then uh, there was pushback uh, in the early 80s. Maplethorpe. I, I was there. I went to that show. Yeah, okay. I was in Cincinnati. Yeah. Andre Serrano. I, um, I, I, I'm trying to think of the woman. Uh, several performance artists. Who, who shut that down? I forget. The politic who was in power at that time? Who shut that down? Do you remember? Shut down. The like, yeah, what time? Who was president? No, but who was president or who, what was the? This would have, what would, this would have been Reagan would have been president when, when the okay. started from the government to, to uh, cut funding to the arts. Uh, and they picked, uh, Andre Serrano did a thing called Piss Christ, which was a famous uh, image that he made of, of a statue of Jesus. I think it was in like a, bottle and he was his urine and it filled up and the Christ was floating in the, in the urine, a big beautiful bizarre prints of that and, and, the, and the evangelical movement which was then taking off. You had, okay, so we had this revolutionary stuff going on in the 60s, then the counter-revolution started, the evangelical movement grew out of that in the counter-revolutionary period and they started uh, imposing a lot of political will on the culture. And one of the first things that they was, did was go after culture, go after visual arts, go after writers, poets, and so forth. This is a standard authoritarian move. Yeah. In any country. Throughout history, you could see it over and over and over. Right I mean, look at when the National Socialists in Germany got into power. I mean, think of what was happening before. that. They were having like an explosion, right, with the Bauhaus. And, so much cultural things were happening in Germany. People don't realize how powerful art is until you bring yeah. this point up. Like, who do the authoritarians go after first? They go after intellectuals, and artists, artists, teachers, poets, and they try to shut that voice down. And, uh, you know, that's what happened in that period of time. Uh, and then you had mainstream responses to that, like the Whitney Museum. Uh, did a, a kind of, uh, I forget the name of it, Delma Golden did a show that was basically uh, uh, all African-American artists. And that was, a, that was the first uh, 10 years before I remember being in a demonstration uh, for something that was, it was against the Rock, the Rockefeller Collection was doing a show at the Whitney, it was called 200 Years of American Art. There was not one African-American artist in it. And I think one woman was, was in this show. So that, that was uh, in 76, and, and, and that brought together uh, Artist Meeting for Cultural Change, that was called. And uh, we opposed the Whitney Museum show and picketed and, uh, and did all that. And that was the beginning of a kind of, a, or another step in the consciousness of the absence of women and people of color. That was basically a white, you talked about art, and you were basically talking about white males. Uh, yeah. That was basically it. But it sounds like you had an impact on the museum. Say that again? It sounds like you had an impact on the museum. Uh, well, yeah. uh, absolutely, there yeah. was. An imp we, we did have an impact, and it played out over, over the years in, 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 in things like Black Lives Matter and, and what's going on now. Or, 
you know, it, it, they come in waves, this social change comes in waves. Um, it, it, it goes into a, a recession, it's beaten back, and then it, but it comes back, you know, it comes back. So obviously when I first met you, I guess it's about 2004 maybe? Mm -hmm. When I went to your studio, it was, you were working on paintings, mm -hmm. and in a way, I feel like this is a continuation. It's like this long thread yeah. that you're exploring all, everything through this, right? Yeah. So tell me about the transition of when you yeah, sure. went from that to having a studio and painting. And I've been working uh, in the late 70s in those social movement situations we described earlier. And uh, one day I was uh, walking around Soho and uh, I saw a poster. Uh, we're recording. Say something. Hello. <laughs> All right. So before we were going to get into your transition to painting, but I just while we were changing out the batteries, you just mentioned. Uh, that, uh, I'll tell you the transition yeah. from activists yeah. to making paintings. What happened was after about five years of this activist process that I was involved in, I missed reflection being able to reflect on something and make an image which didn't have a direct, immediate purpose. So I began to uh, paint and work in the studio again on my own. And then um, I saw this poster in Soho calling for a meeting. And, and the meeting was, uh, it had Lucy Pard's name on it. I'd been reading her in the Village Voice. It's impossible to overemphasize her importance in everything that took place in the lower, in, in the New York art scene in terms of a politicized art. And the voice too, right? You had this newspaper. Voice was huge. That was kind of for the people in a way. It was the place yeah. that to go for the most current, and most people wrote, And people read what, pe there were writers writing yeah. the voice yeah. every day. Yeah. People picked it up and looked at it. Oh yeah. It was a really important vehicle for us. In a way, that was the closest thing to kind of the internet, that immediate like yeah. information source yeah. from the ground up. Yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. So go on, sorry. No, I'm that's just... all right. But yeah, that, that publication and Lucy, Elizabeth Hess was really important. Hans Hawke was very important. Leon Golub, Nancy Spiro. Uh, May Stevens, Rudolf Baranek, these people were real uh, heroes of those of us who was trying to figure out a way to make art as we understood art uh, as a, a, a private reflective process and still have it connect to the larger world, you know, and they showed different ways to try to do that, each of them. and. Uh, we began to go to meetings and stuff where these luminaries would be and, and you began to get a sense that maybe this is possible, that you can do this. And so uh, I, I began that process and uh, started putting in some studio uh, time and then I joined uh, this political art documentation. I began to work collaboratively. Lucy and I met, we, we really liked each other, we hit it off. We started a five-year collaboration together. Uh, we wrote and published and uh, uh, organized exhibitions. We traveled all around the country, worked with unions a lot. That's amazing. Uh, 
and, and there was a lot around the country were a lot of uh, groups that had been formed out of that 60s model of social organizing. There were cultural groups by this time in 1980 all around the country, mural, muralists, there was a lot of uh, magazines that people published, a short, you know, little quarterlies, various ways of working outside of the commercial system. And, and Lucy and I sort of, uh, you know, we, we were part of that network and, and she was hugely important to making cohesion around the country of this network. It, may, it grew out of her prominence in the feminist movement and then she championed uh, Native American rights. Uh, all, all of her work in that period of time were really powerful agents to bring into mainstream culture to give visibility to aspects of the culture that were invisible. And uh, there was no other way for no. people to be aware of this stuff. And I know in the immediate, you're bringing it into the the art culture scene, which is already kind of aware, there is a kind of growth to that. It kind of expands beyond that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, I, 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 mean, I was that's why we do this. <laughs> to do Vector because I was inspired by all those small, weird magazines in the 80s yeah. and, and 70s. And mm -hmm. I looked around me at the time and I didn't see anything yeah. like that. And I kind of have this cultural aspect to me, even right. though I love being in the studio and like yeah. shutting myself off in my own little universe, yeah. that's only 50% of me. Yeah. I also need this cultural yeah. collective yeah. project yeah. thing. Yeah. But that to me, I was inspired directly from that time period. Yeah. So it trickled out to me. Yeah. You see what I mean? It took 20 years or whatever. Well, so. it trickled down to us. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, we were looking back uh, at the, uh, the beat movement in San Francisco and, uh, you know, City Lights and, and uh, Ginsburg and all of that world. They were a model for right. out, outside the mainstream cult, uh, culture making. And the anti-war movement generated a lot of theater groups and, and uh, San Francisco Mime and, and various kinds of theater groups that were blurring the edge between high art and popular culture and, and activism and reflection. And there was just a lot of, as you say, a, a lot of that going on. And we, we, can, we can trace the beats back to the 1930s. This desire to be a human being as well as an artist, it, you can go, it's always been there in art. It just is not, it's not pushed as the, as the uh, high end of art practice. It's seen always as kind of an outsider, troublemaking uh, kind of thing. But in fact, it's one of the most vital and most important aspects of what we do, you know. And I want to get into that, but not yet, because I, I want to go back to what you were talking about, about what you were doing with um, the, you were in this five-year project, the project. You want to go back to the organizing period or well, to you, you, the transition? Well, you were telling me you're in this transition, you were in this five-year collaborative project. I want to keep going from there. Well, Lucy and I started working together and we, and we worked in this group called Political Art Documentation that I've mentioned a couple of times. And uh, so uh, we would, uh, our idea was to combine, to do something different. Instead of being a critic 
who writes about the artists and judges whether or not the artist is uh, interesting or not. We wanted to do a thing where the artists and the critic work together for a unified purpose. And so uh, we combined our, uh, my visual abilities, her writing abilities and stuff to, to make a kind of activist art. And the forms that we chose were ephemeral forms rather than objects necessarily for what we were doing. We wanted to treat what we were doing as uh, or, or organizing information that could, could, uh, could enter the flow uh, through paperbacks, uh, newspapers, uh, publications, uh, uh, speeches, uh, talking a lot, uh, slideshows, all of these things. We, we wanted to spread the idea that culture could be larger than a business or a career and that, that was really important too. Because in, what one forgets is in the period of the 70s and minimalism and that the voice was taken away from art. We didn't have a public voice. When you began to come and we would talk about uh, uh, that art should address the social issues of the time, uh, people would say uh, something like, uh, uh, get the Pony Express or, or it, it was, anathema to high fine art that it could have a public voice that would address issues that were pertinent to the day. Uh, art was seen as something uh, transcendent, above, outside. It had its own voice and, and only a few people know how to speak the language and only a few people can understand the language. And we were very much about trying to open, open that construct up and, and, and that's what all these groups were about as well, and, 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 and out of that grew an emphasis on process uh, over object. Now this is going on in the mainstream too, process over object, right? But we took it to the notion of a social discourse process, not a process of gravity or minimalist vocabularies are breaking down into uh, fluid forms and so forth. But we saw it as that yes, we are part of a process and we want to uh, be part of shaping that process uh, outside of the white box, outside of the institutions which define the vocabulary of what can be said and not said, what can be spoken about, and most importantly, who can speak and who, who gets to be heard uh, within the white box and outside the white box. So all of these uh, adventures into uh, activity rather than thing making, uh, you can see how that's flown on in time uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, to, to this day and will continue, uh, you know, yeah. So where does that, from there, where do you go? Well, I began to paint and... Um, oh, before you, first yeah. I wanted to say like, I just, um, that's an amazing, um, just to, to work with a writer and try to work together. Yeah. That's kind of a, such a unique approach to, yeah. to critique critique and I mean just work, the relationship work. Yeah. yeah and just trying to find a symbiosis you know it's such it's so 
intent, like how do you meld these things together and that in a way that um, just making that decision to try to do that, yeah. you're putting yourself into like figuring it out leads to yeah. new things and that I just kind of am so inspired by that. I could see you guys like, like how do we do this? Like we don't even know what to do here. Right. And then that moment where you start somewhere and it starts to form and then you, it goes here and then it goes there. And I imagine after five years, you really started to look, you look back and you're like, wow, we did so many things here and it led to all these things, this experimentation and pushing ourselves in this. And I'm wondering, I'm trying to think of an ex other example of something like that in my recent history. I can't, yeah, I'm well, sure it happens, but. Yeah, usually now the, 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 the critic is, is I don't even sort of see pushed that out of the. <laughs> I actually think that's a problem. I do too. That there's no young writer. That, I mean, there are, and I'm sure they write in blogs, and they, but there's something about a village voice where you have this collective, and I, I know it still exists. I mean, there's podcasting and there's blogging. Well, and, one of the really negative developments over the last 30 years or so has been the degrading and, and, and pushing aside the importance of the critical voice. Uh, it now, uh, exhibitions used to depend on, like if you got really good reviews and people uh, uh, wrote about the work intellectually and wrote about, then that would be some basis for collectors to get interested and so forth. But they've totally, the marketing, the commodification has totally overridden the intellectual aspect. Oh yeah, of, it's the money. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the biggest news was uh, people and NFT, whatever, $69 million. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, it's... There's no critique of the work. It's just like, whoa, crazy. Yeah, yeah it's, all, it's all a And I think the NFT thing's interesting, but it's, and maybe in a way you need something like that to just get people looking focusing at a decentralized system, which is in a s itself might be a really good thing, but yeah, it's not. I've been thinking about this critic thing. Like I, I want to try to do something with critics, with Vector, but I'm, I haven't quite figured it out yet, but I know a lot of writers and I don't see any kind of place where they can express themselves that is like a kind of hub. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I, I didn't want to talk about myself. No, no I, I think that the reason we're in this conversation yeah. is because it, you're thinking about these things in, thinking about these things. in the present moment. Because yeah. <laughs> so there's people, there's so much happening. Yeah. And it's a matter of um, just connecting and organizing and creating certain hubs so that people pay attention, you know? We found one of the uh, things that I was very aware of from the very beginning is if you want to organize artists, you need to be able to provide uh, opportunities for them to show their work. An artist will work collectively if in the end there's a possibility of getting their work out to the world and so forth. So we work very hard to connect with situations where we could offer that 
So it's almost like you, we were offering you have to, what the you main... Have to offer. Yeah, so you have to have something like a, a magazine or a, you have to have a, a, a place where the creativity can, ha can reach the public. And then I, I think uh, our artists will come together and collectivize because they have that personal interest and their own social interest. And they're so hungry. We're so hungry for it. Like we're starving yeah. in a way. Just yeah. we have. So, I mean, we're so passionate and driven, and we're doing it whether there's money or not. Like twenty-four-seven. I mean, that drive and energy is mm -hmm. there. Right. And you just give. You just open that valve up, and yeah. it's like psh, exactly. You know, like yeah. I mean, it's yeah. always there. I think and it's society there. Society kind of isn't even aware of it. They're more interested in tech companies or technology, which are great, innovation, all that. I mean, I love what's happening in technology. Sure. And I'm, they're always like, out of the box, out of the box. But around the world, you have like the most out of the box, right. the most innovation right. for nothing. It's so innovative that it's not even concerned about profit or this or that. That's, right. it's the total surf in the edge of the wave. It almost seems like the market is kind of dumb. It's like, yeah. here's this massively untapped yeah. thing for the world. Yeah. And they're doing it and they're gonna continue to do it whether you pay attention or not. Right. But, right. I don't know. That's, I kind of went off well, the Well, that's time, it. That, <laughs> level, that, that level of innovation is the kind of thing that leads to a revolutionary kind of change when a force comes up within the culture which challenges uh, either by non-participation and then like organize something outside of the way in which uh, they, the process was traditionally organized that counters to the tr traditional organizing and you challenge. It's like Soho wouldn't let in the kind of art that was being done in the East Village until the East Village built a Got profile. more attention. Got more attention. Yeah, and that's what's less and less people going to the shows. Right. The collectors, right. Want the collect collectors are kind of interesting because right. they, there is this element of uh, investment and speculation, but there's also an element of like, you want to get in that, to that edge. You want to, there's something about yeah. people who have money, who are into art. Yeah. They want to be on the edge. Yeah, there are, there are and, those uh, and that's absolutely true. Yeah. And they'll be like, yeah, okay. And they'll start paying attention to this. And then the galleries are like, uh-oh, you know? <laughs> Art's all about uh, pursuing youth. And yeah. uh, people who, who are powerful and middle-aged or older and uh, they're collecting, they're actually collecting youth yeah. and energy. They're collecting energy. It's energy. And that, that's what, and some of them are collecting or trying to buy a soul. <laughs> I've had wealthy collectors say that to me. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in art because it's the only place I can find my soul. And I thought, well, maybe well, that's, 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 maybe that's a good thing that, that art does. Maybe art is a kind of collective soul. It is. I believe it is. I believe I mean, it speaks from that level. You know, it really does. So the thing is, is to generate 
more heat and they will come, so yeah. to speak. So that's where you're at, and you're doing that. Yeah, you were. that's what we were trying to do, is generate more, more heat. And, and uh, like that East Village scene that grew up, it was a, uh, a coming together of uh, a social revolutionary change constructs and ideas, and the desire uh, to bring art, to, to, a, uh, uh, to bring a voice to art in that very direct level. The thing that most of that art all had in common was it was one generally coming out of the human condition. It wanted to speak directly to that, not to uh, a modern, modernist vocabulary, but to let, use modernism's vocabulary and, and fill it with a new content, a new relationship to content. And I, that, possibility is here again right now. It's going on now in various, it's got to be, it can't not be, it has to be. And this period of time uh, where you have all the definitions in the culture are in, in question, including all the cultural definitions and institutions, they're questioning themselves, trying to mea copa, hiring policies now and bringing in uh, artists of color and so forth. Uh, that has to be pushed from the outside uh, by the energy uh, from the outside or it will just flatten and they will co-opt into it. They'll uh, pick a few. 20 or 30. That's what they do, they pick a few. Yep. They make them stars. Yep, and they will pick. And in a way it kind of calms it all down. Yeah. You know. It's the idea. I mean, I look at it in some ways like what's going on. It's like the white mainstream is choosing black artists which show you the ordinariness of blackness, just the everyday quality of being a black person, as if that should be news. You know what I mean? It's like that's news. Yeah. The, the portraiture and the kind of painting that you see them flowing toward and you see going to the galleries, very few people that they're turning to have any kind of social critique in there of any, other than I mean, to say some, we exist. Then, I do think it's cool that some of my friends, some of my black friends, I'm kind of psyched that they're getting making money and Why not? exposure, it's cool. I get what you're saying, though. I get it. And I'm, I'm sure they're aware of it too. But they're kind of like, you know what, fuck it. Like, well, you, you can't, <laughs> you know I mean? absolutely, you yeah. can't exist in this culture without dealing with contradictions. Yeah. You, there's no yeah. purity. No, no, totally, totally. You know, it, there's gonna be contradictions. But the thing is, is to be as aware of them as we can. Yeah. Uh, bringing into dominant white culture, just the image of, of black people yeah. is a positive, a positive change. There's, there's no question about that. But there is an that. element of exploitation. There's an element of, a, a major it, element of yeah. exploitation. And banking off it, or just social pressure to yeah. be like cool or to be like aware. Yeah. That's the, um, the, that's the new moment. In you know, and white it's like, oh, all of a sudden, because of what's happening right now, now you're paying attention. Like, where were you last year? Yeah. You know, yeah. like. Um, but it, it was but the, it's the heat in the street. Yeah, it's the heat in the street. <laughs> it's the heat in the street that's bringing uh, these young black artists into yeah. galleries. Without that heat yeah. in the street, 
this wouldn't be happening. And it gives pressure. Yeah, it is the pressure. So it is the street. It's people going out there. It's a, the, the, it, there's no question about it. That's a good it. thing. And right now, a lot has happened because of the heat in the street in the last year. It always does. So. It, that energy of the people in the street. And they kind of tried to shut it down. And sure. It didn't work this time, I think. No, I think it's bigger. This moment yeah. is equally as large as 68 and, and uh, yeah. uh, in many ways uh, larger, more significant uh, changes. It seems like it's reaching a threshold. It, it, ha it, has, the it has the potential. Years ago. Yeah, it has Maybe the potential. Maybe longer. But it has the potential. But we'll see. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, uh, the, the, the heat in the street <laughs> sort of thing. That's making Biden who he is. Biden would not be the Biden we are. Because he's not normally the guy he is right now. He would now, not be. Right? This legislative package that just yeah. went through and I so forth. I can't even believe it. Right. Like that, imagine right. 20 years, the 80, no right. way. It's the no opposite. Way. It was stripping it away. And it's all comes. And, all, and it's like two years after a massive tax yeah, cut. exactly. Like, what a shift. Exactly. Exactly. That, that, and maybe they only have 18 more months. Yeah. That's exactly. it. Well, you look at, you had the Black Lives Movement, and really Biden owes his presidency to young black women in Georgia and in, in North Carolina and, and, and the South. Biden was over until that, I think it was South Carolina, uh, where he won the, um, the, pro the uh, primary there and, and it pushed him. That was all young black people doing that. They are the ones that are responsible and should get the credit yeah. for the Biden government and the legislation that's coming out of it right now. You talk about all these things that happen in kind of waves of yeah. change and, and, and repression and change and repression. And, and you know, literally, we, are, we have been fighting a civil war in this country from the very beginning, before it was a country. Uh, you know, it was founded on slavery and white indentured workers, along with slaves, were brought into North Carolina in 1610, 1619. And that was the beginning. Yeah, of, the beginning was that in was, this weird intellectual idealism, utopian idealism. Yeah. And in a way, that's what we are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. These two things, it's still to this day. I don't know if they can ever fully be resolved, um, I but think, it has led to I think an interesting... Demographics yeah. will s eventually solve it. We can't... Just we, we, we're either going like to really have an Africana nation or we're going to have a democratic open nation. And there's no way... The, dem the, the growing demographics and the uh, coming together of the races and, 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 and uh, uh, will change the nature of the population. It's already changing it, all the voting that took place with the Democrats this time. In the South, yeah. the Democrats did well. Yeah, that's, I've never seen that. It never, it hasn't happened since, uh, uh, what's this, uh, Lyndon Johnson and, and Nixon. Nixon had what they call the Southern strategy, which was based upon exactly what the Republicans are doing now, which is to disenfranchise the black vote and keep them out of the... Uh, and that's when the 
the Democrats in the South were the conservatives, right? It flipped. The South was Democratic but it was like, prior to yeah. Richard Nixon. And, that and, and Lyndon Johnson said when, when he signed the Civil Rights Act in 1965, he said, this, if I, when I sign this, this will mean a, uh, uh, the, we will lose the South to the Republicans. Yeah, that was the exodus. And it was exactly what That's happened. what formed where we're at today and what's been going on. Since That's exactly then. what happened. And, and, they, uh, and you look at these guys now, the Republican Party, they're in a kind of death spiral of, they, they're in a place where they refuse to accept the, the, the inevitability of a brown culture, so to speak. America is going to be uh, a majority of people of color, I mean, we, and very few. And I mean, we live in that mix, and it works. New York is one of the few places in the world yeah. and where you have that mix. And yeah. Everybody who comes here, somehow they, feel like they can be themselves. Yeah, you know? well that's the, that's, the, uh, so, that's the idea. So the experiment works, and yeah. if you take this as a, I mean kind of, I mean there's, a, there's racial explosions in New York all the time, but the, the it works. The position, uh, maybe I'm being naive. <coughs> the position of black people, uh, uh, if you look at the, uh, you know you go back to the 60s and you look at the current situation in many ways, it's greatly improved. Uh, Racial. I mean, we still have segregation. Yeah, but in many ways it's worse, so, and in many ways it's just the same when it comes yeah. down to true breaking into the mainstream. Well, an extraordinary thing the other day was uh, Biden was giving uh, his speech. Behind him were two women. One yeah. of them was black. She's the vice president of the United States. That's you know, cool. we had a black. President Obama. Yeah. I mean, that's that that w could never have happened in the past. Yeah. So there is. I'm optimistic, uh, despite all of my frustration and anger. I'm yeah. optimistic well, that the, there is an energy here for positive change. <clears throat> all right. So um, say that one more time. Hmm? Say that one more time. Say that one more time. Say that one well, positive change? No, that you're oh. optimistic. I'm optimistic that um, this country is going to move into a progressive era. I think we can defeat this uh, authoritarian uh, situation. I think that the flow of history, the demographics uh, of the population, is, is leading to a new kind of consensus that's, that, that has never been here before. And I see that as uh, progressive. I see Biden as progressive. Uh, I, I think that the Republicans are uh, imploding uh, in a kind of death march. Uh, uh, white racist culture is over. It's, it's going to be a war still. How, the big problem is how do you enfranchise 30 million people in the South, uh, white working class and poor who don't see themselves as part of anything and they're right, they have been excluded, they have been taken advantage of, they, they are the uh, descendants of the indentured white workers that came here and started the place. These are the same people that have been held down. It's the same reason the South wanted to fight the Civil War. They wanted to keep the indentured poor 
and the slaves because it was the basis of their economy. It's still true today. And how do you, as a nation, bring that element uh, in, into some kind of core, believable center is the question that this country struggles with uh, over and over and over again. It's never found the answer because it's never been willing to really uh, deal with class and race uh, and gender uh, as well. It's out in the public. It's like not pretty. It's a mess. It's chaos. Yes. But it's out in yes. the open. Like yes. I spend a lot of time in Europe. Yes. And from the outside, it's like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And I always, I try to tell my friends, my European friends, you're right. It's crazy, but it's out yeah. in the open. It's not not talked about. Correct. It's like, and in a way, maybe that's a good sign. It is a good even sign. Even though it's tumultuous and it's dangerous. Yeah. And it's Social change is scary, always messy. You know? <laughs> but uh, I still think it's good when it's out. I do too. I, I, that's why I say I think this is a progressive, we're, we're entering a yeah. progressive era and it's because the questions are on the table and, and they're not buried and, and they are being talked about and that's very, very, very positive, definitely. Yeah. And, there, and we've shown that, we, that the institution can hold, it, it just stopped fascism. I think there was a period of time post-World War II, my, my fortunate generation of being born in this yeah. window that sort of like post-World War II up until, uh, I mean, you know, basically it's been a pretty quiet in, in many ways in America uh, for 30 or 40 years. There, all the negativity has been going on. It's been a very stable feeling and we are in an unstable feeling period now. And that's because the questions have finally come more and all the questions are more and more to the surface and people have been fighting back and like the Me Too movement, they've been really, that's a significant uh, changes in terms of gender and, and, uh, and the women being beaten down and, uh, uh, you know, uh, sexually assaulted in the workplace and all of that reality is on the table. I think that all these things are so part of you. I think you really do tap yourself into what's happening at each moment. From the person I know and the work I see, there's this, the contemplation, the reflection is important, which we haven't gotten into yet. It seems like you're really tapped into what's happening right now. I'm trying to make an image of those things we're talking about. Yeah. I'm trying to make an image of uh, the nature of the culture that I experience. It's also a visual language and yeah. it, 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 words are, um, they're signs, but there's something else going on in terms of a visual language, uh, it's emotional impact that is not easily described and it varies from individual to individual. Uh, so that's the reason for, I love the immediacy of the visual language, it happens to you. Uh, it, it invades you, as soon as you look at it, it imprints itself on your mind before you have a, a moment to analyze it, uh, what it is. And that, that fascinates me about it in terms of visual language impact on our emotional structure. But just to answer that, when I started painting, um, I remember reading a long time ago, uh, they, when it, we talked about cubism, 
uh, as a visual form of the theory of relativity. And by that, we're talking about they're taking a three-dimensional uh, object and, and, and uh, looking at it in fourth dimensional, which is time. They looked at it from various. So they would put together a profile from the front, a profile from the side, a profile from the back, a profile from the other side, and they would put those down as layers on top of each other. And it was a way of translating uh, relativity, that is, a changing perspective in relationship to whatever you're looking at on a flat surface, on a canvas. And that idea just really fascinated me. I thought, like, I am working in a period of time where we are aware that time and space are uh, uh, an aspect of uh, where you're perceiving it from and, and how much time you spend in each various location and stuff. So, my idea was to organize a picture plane, which kind of came out of, of that idea, uh, but it wasn't looking at a single object, it was looking at an emotional state. And, it, and I would take the language of that emotional state, that being a particular period of time that I find my mind in, and I would take the language that is used to communicate to us and reorganize that in a way uh, that carries the uh, cultural content of the way the image is used in the culture, but then juxtapose it to other images that you're not used to seeing that juxtapose to, you know, like a floating baby from a Charmin ad with a tattooed body of a doer. We see both of those things, but we're not used to seeing them as part of each other. And I hope that that would trigger not an answer that I have for people, but the desire to see things from multiple perspectives and multiple, uh, to realize that everything is mutable and changing depending on who you are and where you are and how you see something. And I don't just mean that, that's, I'm not talking about like the cubist in, in physical space, I'm talking about in, a, in an emotional space, the perspective, that from which I see something, if I'm young and black or old and white or I'm a woman or I'm poor or I'm rich or what, all of those things are factors in how I see, how I take in the reality around me. So some of that I'm tr trying to get that idea that experience is an ongoing, ever-changing process in which I am located at a particular time and space which is also constantly changing and moving in time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so yeah. I'm part of the event, so to speak. So these things are kind of like that, in my mind at least, they're kind of an event which is moving and changing in which there are, are icons or symbols familiar to people, uh, but they're, they're in this evolving, changing, shifting context. And you're putting, you're showing them all at once, kind of from you see them each sort different of, side, yeah, just yeah. like you described with the uh, cubist. But it's there not, is a kind of relativity. It's not cubism, but it's yeah. a it's a kind of rel notion of relativity. I and feel like there's an element of the quantum. Yeah, well, that's what I was because, like, add. you think of quantum. That's what I was going to add. Mechanics, you know, quantum yeah. theory. Yeah. 
There are multiple, multiple dimensions at multiple one time. Multi-dimensional, uh, multi parallel universes. Yeah, parallel universes. Coexisting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm looking right at this right now, so it's influencing me, but there, I forget when it was, but somebody, at some point in time, uh, DC Comics, you have Superman, right? But at some point in time, they made an alternative universe version where Superman was in the Soviet Union that the ship landed. Yeah. And it was a whole parallel universe, what if? Yeah. And I don't know, there's something in that that I see in these. Just because I'm looking at these two soldiers, they kind of remind me of that. Well, Superman, Superman is a World War II yeah. character. He's all good. He's here to save the world. He's an alien, by the way. In fact, he's, he's Jesus is what he is. He's, he's come to Earth and he has these superpowers. Uh, here in this context, he has super in his land. He's just an ordinary guy, but here these are like superpowers. So, but he's all pure and he's all good and so forth. So that's Ronald Reagan, right? and it's our, it's the ideal according to our timeline, our American timeline. Right? Yeah, it's a World War II figure. It's yeah. a white male, uh, save the world, go off and rescue everybody, yeah. save the world. A white male, all powerful, all good. Yeah. All-powerful, all-knowing. Superman is in the time of Reagan. He, he came back, uh, you know, first he's a World War II figure, then he went into a silly little television character that was important yeah. to keep him alive. And then that Christopher Reeves movie was made in, in the late 70s. And it, it came in at the same time that Reagan came in to, as, as the sheriff. As, as, as and it's kind of like Cold War hero. Cold War so. hero. And then you have uh, uh, Batman, who replaced Superman in popular culture, uh, being a central figure. Now, Batman is more confusing. He's a dark figure. He's a sort of good guy, bad guy. He's, he's an outlaw. He's hidden. He's a millionaire. He's multiple dimensions, yeah. right? right? And he's, he's, uh, a, a, he's, but he's wealthy. He's a yeah. wealthy avenger to, to take care of the poor. So that's like a corporate, duplicitous, good guy, bad guy image. That's Bill Clinton. Private sector hero, yep. vigilante, yep. freedom. Yep. Who justice. came next? I don't know. The Joker. Oh, uh, the Joker. Yeah, that movie. And three movies. Three. The, yeah. the, the, three the, movies in the same year. And if you look at that movie, it came out before this year, and we're kind of in that realm right now. Right? Absolutely. I mean, that that last Joker is absolutely. That that's is, absolute anarchy. That's an intense movie. That's a really good movie. Yeah. It's and. Uh, so those three characters, if you take the Joker, Batman, and Superman, you really can trace the consciousness shifting in terms yeah. of the alpha male in Western culture. If you think of what these symbols are and you look at them like you're talking about, that they represent a kind of... So, like they represent a shift in perception. I in feel like that's what you're talking about. It is what I'm talking you're about. You're kind of taking these uh, hidden underlying stories. Assumptions about the character. Yeah. Right. And stories about what's happening right, right now. Right. That's and you're right. kind of putting them all together right. in this kind of fourth dimensional right. realm. It really makes sense. Please continue talking about the Joker. That no, I think if you look at another uh, thing, you look at the Jesus character yeah. through time, 
And you look at, let's say, you can look at various cowboy movies uh, from the very beginnings of cowboy movies, and uh, you look at particularly like Clint Eastwood movies. It's the hero's journey. Clint Eastwood plays the pale rider. He seems to come from nowhere. He's a loner. He's he's not a good guy. He's, he's a, a gunman. He's a bad guy, but he's a hero. He's a good guy, but he's a bad guy. Yeah. Uh, you don't you, you you know I don't quite know what to think, but he's a hero. He saves the people, and then he rides off into the mountain. Yeah, that's a weird. Um, it, that, that's because he's actually not wealthy. He's like always on the very edge. He's he's an outlaw and generally. He's kind of a bad guy. Like yeah. he he's still an outlaw. He's right. well, still like the, uh, taking the money. The dirty hairy. He's movies. giving some. He's give, throwing the money. Yeah. He fixed the problem, but he's yeah. still leaving town with yeah. the bags of gold yeah. and. Yeah. And they have to build into those characters aspects about them that you like and admire because if you just dislike them, it doesn't work. You've got to both admire them and be a little afraid of them, and, and they have to be kind of heroic, but they're also kind of dark. And so they have these multiple, it's much more interesting than Superman, because they have these multiple aspects to their personality that's much more like ordinary life. And, and actual people are. So they're very, very appealing uh, that way. But in the end, they are all based on this notion of the hero, the hero's journey. The, the, hero, uh, see, he, the hero risks his own life by going into the darkness and, 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 and then return in death, and then returning from death or the darkness with the information that will save and renew the culture. And so you have all these dirty, hairy characters in the Cowboys. And that's like an ancient story. That's the right? a most ancient yeah. story. And that's it's the, the story That's the hero's of, quest, right? Joseph Campbell kind of. It goes back to the, or, to the beginnings of human beings, trying to determine what is the definition of the alpha male. Uh, is what these characters are trying to tell us. And, they, and, and uh, they change depending upon the nature of the culture at a particular time. During the Prohibition era, you had all the gangster movies come into uh, play in Hollywood so that the gangster became the hero. The gangster was the hero. Uh, that notion of the gangster being the hero uh, is really central to our, our culture. So the Joker. The Joker is everything. The Joker is like the devil. The Joker can it's, pretend. Uh, the Joker is supposed to. First of all, the Joker right? is supposed to be funny. I mean, it comes yeah. from a a uh, you know like that uh, Chucky the clown toy kind of thing. It's like humor and things that are supposed to be uh, joyful and humorous. They turn it inside out to to see the opposite. What's the name? The, the, there's a wonderful sculptor in, in LA. I think his name is McCarthy, uh, yeah. who did all those performances with uh, Paul, McCarthy. Uh, Paul McCarthy's. He he's really he the, he's really into that. Iconography. He was one of the artists in the show. Yeah, that, I think he. That I curated in you know in Munich. So he, well, he, he ruptures. He's in that. He understands what we're talking about. Yeah, that show. Even look, the show goes in. It was years ago, 2007, uh, 2006, me, 2006, I think. I saw something. a show of his at uh, uh, Lauren Augustine, I okay. think, he, uh, here in New York in about that period of time. 
Okay, yeah, I saw Echagosia. There were works that I think had first started in the 90s or something, and I remember Lauren Augustine had some of the films and performances yeah. and stuff. But anyway, yeah, the, it's that American high school cheerleader, you know, like the yeah. whole it's thing. the dark like, side of But the, like, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like a nightmare. Yeah. That's kind of always there, right? It's yeah. real. Yeah. It's, it's there. We're it's definitely there. It's like mad comics. And I do see kind of some madness in the... Well, not madness, but there's a dark There's the darkness, to yeah. There's a kind of noir it's, quality to, yeah. all, to pretty much everything I do. It's, it just comes out. I don't... They take a lot of time. Planet, yeah. Because like just sitting here for a couple yeah. hours, yeah. it's like they just keep, it's like I'm starting to get more and more into them. Painting takes time. Takes time. You can't it's, just look at it. And no. You got to live with it. Yeah. I mean, you, and you know, you live with them yeah. for the entire creation. Yeah. And, and your work is, I imagine it's slow. It, yeah. Body work develops over one to two years, yeah. maybe longer. Maybe yeah. you have some pieces that... Yeah. I've been going on for years and years. I mean, and these years. are small works for you. Yeah, these are small. And you're and usually working much a massive panel. Yeah. That's what I know. Of your yeah, work. we're gonna see some. Yeah. Wow, we got into so much. You are listening to Vector. So tell people again where we are. We're in uh, Bed Stuy, Brooklyn, in my studio on uh, Park Avenue, and. Uh, it's Sunday, the 2nd of uh, May, and Peter and I are talking about works in progress in the studio right now. Yeah, I'm looking at his big paintings right now, which I, are more familiar to me than the, show, the work in your exhibition, because this is, when I first met you, you had these massive paintings. Um, yeah, that generally, the, the paintings that we saw on the show uh, this morning are really uh, things that I do in between these, <laughs> you know? And they just, and I sort of built them up over a period of a few years, uh, the small ones, and so that was an opportunity to show them. But primarily I work at this larger scale. I just, and more, I like a painting that uh, is like an environment that's big enough to where the, the size of the bodies are kind of are slightly, and these are mostly slightly larger than natural size of these uh, diptychs. And so there's a kind of engaging, uh, there's a sense of presence in the large thing that just isn't in a smaller one. The smaller paintings are like more, I think of them as more visual or intellectual, and these are more felt. I want you to feel the space and the size of the bodies and so forth. So. I've always been drawn to larger canvases. And these are uh, primarily all diptychs, and they didn't necessarily start out that way, but as I began to work and accumulate them, it just fascinated me that I could have like two cells together and just go back and forth and get a much larger, more complicated story going on, but actually not a overly complicated space. So it's sort of like a more, each of these just have a figure in the center and an environment, uh, not a lot of layering like it's in the show in Manhattan, but the story comes, uh, the juxtaposition of what's going on in the two cells. And uh, I'm looking for connections between them. Like this, this 
one we're looking at here with the two women and the shovel. This foreground will end up being like the foreground on the right here. So we'll be a sense that they're in a common space together. Yeah, I see, even like in that one. Like there, there's a there's sense a that they're, the skies suggest that they're in the same place and they're in different places in that environment. They're in different locations in the environment. I think that's new. It is a, a, a diptychs. I've, all, I've had them in my mind for a long time, but you know, I haven't really produced them until now. Um, and they take time. I tend to, I don't want to know, once I start a painting, I don't want to know what the left panel is going to be when I'm working on the right one. It's only after the right one's done and I have a period of time with it that I, that I can begin to think about what the left side should be or the, you know, the opposite side should be. How long of a time period is this? How long have I been working on these? Uh, we're looking at about a year and a little more, maybe a, maybe a year altogether with what, what we see in the room. So you've been, you've been in the studio a lot? Been in the like studio that? a lot with the COVID thing and, and uh, you know, as I lost my wife Nora and uh, my work at first was a kind of magical thinking kind of thing. I could come to the studio and and something would come out of me that was uh, here and now somehow. It was just touching. I did a lot of image paintings that had her in it, literally. And it was almost like a magical kind of, if I could touch her body or try to remake her body somehow, it would somehow make her more present for me. And, and, and I, didn't I think- I didn't know that. Pardon? I didn't know that. Part of the yeah. process of, of a, I look at making a painting like it's a it's it's a literal transferal of my life energy to a material form. I reach out with my hand and I touch the surface of something in the world that we all share together and I put a mark on it and it it, it somehow is an assertion of my existence and my ability to go on. When I lost Nora just coming to the studio and, 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 and going on each day, uh, translating my life energy to a surface, had a kind of magical reaffirming quality that helped me survive the loss of her. And I, I really, at that time, I really began to think a lot about uh, what the activity means to me, just the activity of applying the paint to the surface had this affirming quality to it that I hadn't thought of earlier until I literally used it as a way to survive the day, you know, yeah, and a place to way, put my mind. Kind of lucky to have this mechanism to just express everything we're going through. I think I so. Know how I would deal with things without that. I agree. And, then, and even things that aren't as impactful as that. You know, yeah, just being here and trying to make some sense of it. Uh, each of us, you know, I think those of us who are drawn to making imagery, we're really trying to recreate our brain in some way and, and find uh, some stability in there. And I think for me, it takes the form of making an image on a flat surface. I think it, for other people, it takes all kinds of forms, yeah. but that act of 
touching the world and, ha and having some effect on the world that we touch is such a powerful and immediate aspect of existing, you know, and that's where art comes in, I think. It, 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 it allows us to translate existence into something outside of ourselves and, and, and you know there's a kind of uh, illusion of permanence about it and so forth. It's a kind of like having children or something. The child is a translation of the parent in some way and I think making art is akin to that process in some way that I don't pretend to fully understand but it definitely measures time in a way for me that helps me um, not resolve but just sort of carry on with the complexity that's around me. You know, I think that's at root, that's what it does, for me anyway. Well said. <clears throat> wow. That's where we I are, mean, right? You asked me in the car right over here, like, if I've been working lately on painting, and I, I haven't been, right, because I've been on the move a lot, and I just told you how the longer I'm not doing it, I feel the deficiency of it. You know? Absolutely. It has an impact on me. And things get more and more confusing, you know, uh, because you can't make that translation that's being kept from you. At least I feel, it, 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 if, if you're taken away from this activity, we're so obsessive about it. And I, I think it, it is that translation part that uh, seeing oneself manifested and translated uh, that, that leads to some notion of uh, progress and sanity or even just stability. You know, Sometimes I, I feel like it's the only time I'm actually really thinking. Yeah. You know, like as if it's another hemisphere of the brain. Or yeah. I, know, I don't know. I think you said it much better than I have. No, I, I think yeah. it's true. I, I, I think it does exist in another realm of identity. And uh, I mean, you think about uh, human beings from, the, from as early on as we can find in archaeology, the act of uh, making an image is so central uh, to our earliest existence. You know, they talk about it as a form of power, that I make, an an I make an image of an animal that I want to capture. And by making the image, I some have like a kind of ritualized expression of that desire, and it kind of, it sort of helps manifest reality. So the image comes out of me and it's a kind of a sign or direction toward understanding. You know, I, I, I don't know any more to say about it except that it exists on that very fundamental level, which, I, you know, what makes it so attractive to us for a whole lifetime to just need to do that. You know, I mean, it's like it's in, our, it's in the DNA of a small sample of humans that our role is to be the translator of that. Uh, material, you know, it's like, a, and, and if it's in you and you're obsessed by it, I think you often, most of us know it when we're very young and we, we just start doing it very young, you know, and yeah. continue it. Uh, For sure. It's, I think we're, it's, it's a weird, we're some little element of the whole species uh, and, and, and that that's our role to try to do that. Yeah, and you mentioned something he just hinted at something when we were talking in this gallery mm -hmm. that there's a, a kind of evolutionary part to this. Yeah, I, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful book. Uh, a woman whose name is Ellen Desenayake. And uh, she, uh, uh, one of her books is called Aestheticus, Homo Aestheticus. 
um, the aesthetic human. And her basic uh, idea is that art is a fundamental trait for survival. Art is a manifestation of a human trait for survival, which is to declare the self in the world, to, to have some kind of, uh, of a um, connection that you can alter that you can alter the world that you're in. Make, make, you can, you can uh, interpret it, uh, translate it, make, a, make an image from it, that you can hold it in your hand. You can make an image of a giraffe or an image of a human being, hold that image in your hand. There's a certain kind of connection there, uh, kind of almost you know, a human godlike thing, uh, some sort of godlike thing in all of this too. Uh, and she, she talks about, um, that the earth, this is the thing I really love, the early, and which was part of painting the babies and stuff. The earliest signs of culture and art, what we call art and so forth, uh, can be found in the dialogue between the mother and the infant, and the newborn infant, where the mother is making, doing all this, you have drama and theater and sound and music and so forth, by the sounds the mother makes to the baby, and then the baby uh, echoes the sound back. That that very, er and then the movements of the head and the facial expressions and all of that, that those, that's the origin of theater and art and communication is in that very early. So from the very beginning. Yeah, right? from, from, the, from the infant and the mother. And I, I just find that such a beautiful idea. Uh, these, the same things that she does, mimicry, exaggeration, uh, rhythm, line, uh, you know, the distortions of the face which are accumulating emotions for the child. And you watch the child, the child will mimic the emotion that's coming at it. And that brings pleasure to the mother, and so the child will do it again. And, and it, through that process, I think art is like that. <laughs> I think the art is the mother's face, you know. And we are all the infant, so to speak. Oh, and we're looking cool. at the mother's face when we look at art. I, um, I want to read this book. Wow. You were talking before when we were eating about the diptych behind you with the Joker and you were flipping opposites. Yeah, well, it, and we don't have to get into it, but I no, think I'm happy to, to try to do that. Uh, absolutely. Uh, if there are two things that in, in our culture at this moment are, uh, that seem to be the opposite of each other, uh, it might be the, the cowboy and the young black woman. Uh, I mean, they're, they're pretty far apart. And, and it, it, so I put them together as one thing. What I think is things that we often see as opposites are not connected to each other are actually a part of a whole, a part of a whole dynamic of understanding of a completeness, you know. The way in which you look at a cowboy image and the way in which you look at the face of a young black woman, those are culturally embedded in us over time. And we can't help but when we see an image where they are combined and not separate from each other and apparently not relating to, but they're combined so that they're part of one body, we, we have to uh, in some way assimilate the idea that they are part of a whole and, and that we're not seeing the whole and, and generally because of the way in which the culture has taught us to read things. So that way we can read a young black woman as the other 
if we're white, or we, or if we're a black person, we can read the white cowboy as the other. You know what I mean? So, it, so like what I guess what I'm trying to do by making a, a amalgam like that is to slide together uh, embedded cultural ideas of difference and join them in a way, in an unexpected way that causes us to rethink it. So you're kind of hacking our program. It's kind of a hacking, <laughs> hacking process. But it works. I think so. Like, I, mean, I, I actually know. want to see a movie with that character. Yeah, that character it, would be cool interesting, would be? wouldn't she? Yeah. If you made a whole film. Yeah, plus it's also male and female. It's, yeah. it's a gender thing, and it's notions of power. And it, that is particularly is the face of an actress playing Billie Holiday and the black woman jazz singer and the white cowboy gunman uh, coming together to me is, is uh, a really very American trip, yeah. you know, very. And both those things are purely American too. That's the weird thing. Yeah. They're both just as American, right? Yeah. That's what I think. On their own. Yeah, that's what I think, yeah. So, but yet, putting together, that's like... They say something else. And then the Joker... Well, the Joker is interesting because the Joker does that in and of itself. The Joker face started, you know, it, 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 the reason it's so scary, one of the reasons it's so scary is that it has intimations that it, it's a child's toy or, or you know, the, the, that face with the makeup. It's a clown face. And, uh, or, and a doll-like, clown-like face. The fact that evil comes out of that, that is sort of like the cowboy and the black woman. You have the dichotomy of the, something that you think of as a, a toy-like thing or a happy thing, a clown, and uh, underneath the clown is this terrible murderer, de deceptive being. So the Joker uh, is not something I did. That's something that my sort of thinking is, is that that's what makes it such a fascinating image to the culture. That's what makes him so fascinated at this period of time. Because we're in a period of time where what something seems to be is quite often not what it is. And what you're told something is is quite often not what the truth is. So there's a, there's a sense of deception now in, in the culture in general carried out by like the, the Trump world that we've been living in where alternate facts or alternate realities or and so forth uh, hey have given credence to the notion that there's no central truth to believe in and uh, the joker is very much a figure which uh, underscores that the popularity of the joker i think is a subliminal reading in the culture uh, uh, that we know that we are living that reality and he uh, that character is a uh, metaphor uh, for it like that recent movie that ends up in uh, anarchy in the streets and it's interesting in that one of the final see I thought they should have ended the movie uh, uh, when he was standing on the, the wrecked car in the crowd and, and did the crucifix thing, I thought, wow, if they have the guts to end this movie now where the that Joker is Jesus, that's the most brilliant movie. But they didn't. They, they did a Hollywood ending on it. But they should have just, that should have gone to How black. End? I can't it goes, and did he's he go insane, and he's in an insane asylum. Oh, and, he, and he break, and he's violent, and, you know, he starts 
kicking in doors and murdering. God, what if they ended it right there? Yeah. So they had to have him be insane, be crazy. Yeah. You know, in other words, it, it's sort of like uh, uh, the way in which Hitchcock ended Psycho. So if they ended it right where he was in the crucifixion. If he's crazy, then, then he's know. not responsible yeah. for his cruelties and stuff, you know. But he's also, uh, that's such a brilliant characterization in that movie. He's just unbelievable. The dances that he does, the dance coming down the, the cement steps that he does, uh, the, the body stuff that he does, the distortion. It felt sinister. Somehow. Oh my God, it's so deeply yeah. sinister, yeah. It, it's a, do you remember the scene in Reservoir Dogs? Did you ever see, you know the movie yeah. Reservoir Dogs? And, and uh, when the guy, they're in a, the guy's in the warehouse, he has a cop in a chair and he's got a straight edge razor, uh, the gangster does, and he puts on this uh, uh, really sweet rock and roll song. And the, the cop is there and he's got the, he's got the switchblade and this rock and roll song comes on a kind of 60s or 50s mm -hmm. rock and roll song. And he starts doing this soft dance around the guy in the chair and you know he's going to go over there and and kill him but it's the juxtaposition of this uh teenage romance dance lovers dance uh, music yeah, right. and the soft shoe around the guy and then it, but we know that that is all a facade and underneath it lurks murder in a way these works you're positioning yourself in that line yes. between and that tension, right yes. in that threshold, which I've noticed artists tend to love those thresholds. You know, if you think mm -hmm. about most of us, we tend to be obsessed with these places in between. Well, I a think lot we're, of people, yeah, I think, I think we, we sense, at least I feel, I sense that that's how life is. Life is, we want permanence. Yeah. We, we yearn for stability and permanence, but we are in a situation where there is no such thing. There's no such thing as permanence. So we're constantly, there's a sense of deception about life itself because of the desire, our, our ideologies are all about, everything you see is all about building a home and getting permanence and happiness and everything's going to be settled and calm and, and the family's going to grow up and the kids are going to go to college and all that. But the truth is, is that is not the truth. <laughs> that, that does happen and, and, and it can be partially truth and it can be the truth for a lot of people. But for many, many other people, that is a false a permanence is underneath everything. Underneath it is that uh, is there is con there's nothing permanent but change. Yeah. There is nothing permanent but the fact that everything is evolving and changing by the second. You can't yeah. exist and be permanent in that way. You, you have to evolve uh, and, and, and time just goes. That's yeah. those TikToks over there and that's those paintings. The only thing is that is this metronome of, of change. And all our ideologies are made to cover that up. Yeah, and I think in Buddhism, they start with impermanence, right? Like you have to come to terms with yes, life is impermanent. You, exactly, that's the whole idea. You have to accept the notion that nothing... That's one of the premises, I think. It is exactly, a fundamental, premise. a fundamental about holding on and letting go, you know, and recognizing that the moment is all there is. 
and that uh, you have to act in the moment because, the, you know, what is there some wonderful saying about the, the future and the past? That the present is constantly becoming the past, you know, it's like it's just no way of that not being true. I think probably I feel those things from my personal life experience, that kind of contradictory reality. Uh, uh, that, uh, and so that has led me, things that happened in my own childhood has led me not to trust uh, what I'm told about the reality around me. And so I've always been uh, one who kind of wanted to look under the rug or look behind the door because I always felt that the, the danger was there. It, 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 if I didn't see it, it was because I didn't look well enough, you know, so no matter when I start out to make an image, I don't, I never really consciously start out to make dark imagery. It just naturally comes from how rug. I see the world. It takes courage to look under the rug. Sorry? It takes courage to look under the rug. Like, I, you know, in lucid dreaming, uh, you ever I, have a lucid dream? Yeah. In lucid, I haven't had that many lucid dreams, but um, I remember this one where all of a sudden I was aware that I was dreaming. And then I was like, oh shit, I'm dreaming. Anything could be behind that door. Wow. And I couldn't open the door because I was like, I'm in a dream, it could be anything. Right. And <laughs> if, you're dream, if you're not lucid, then you open the door and yeah. Yeah. maybe it's something, maybe it's not, and you deal with the feelings of it. But yeah. to know and to make the choice to do it, that takes courage. It's yeah. like, and I think it's a lot of courage in, in making art. I mean, you're faced with, I mean, it's hard for people who don't to even comprehend that, because it's like, but when you're faced, even the process, like you said, of not knowing necessarily what that second image is going to yeah. be in the diptych, it's like really a challenge. Yeah. It, there's pain involved. There's like oh, there definitely is. stretching. I do think it takes a lot of time, a lot of those 10,000 hours, right? Of you know, I'm, I'm still really, learning. I'm still learning. Yeah. <laughs> you know? These are powerful. Wow. Thank you. I don't know if it's okay. I'd like to take some pictures. I mean, all pictures you okay. like. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. To give people a I'd like people to be able to see them. That's why I make them. That'd be really great. You must be getting tired, so maybe... I'm, but, I'm, I'm exhausted yeah, from yesterday. So maybe, Today, I really enjoyed doing this a lot. Me too. This is great. I'd like to talk to you about the program you did with UMass. When I came to New York in the late 70s, as we talked about earlier, I kind of looked around, and, and the people, most of the people who were succeeding in the art world were from a few schools. Uh, Yale being yeah. in that period of time, and SVA, Cal Arts, uh, for example, those schools. And uh, I learned from friends and stuff and saw that those schools all had all these networks in the city. And like you were a graduate, you graduated from uh, Cal Arts and come to New York, and, and there'd be like a, 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 a list of artists that you could. That all network you could, Yeah, big network, right? And I knew that my kids, that I was teaching up in the University of Massachusetts, that they were just as good, they were just as talented as, as this other group who were succeeding. And the, the one difference was the network, and, and that they 
these kids who were succeeding were, and it just makes total sense, it's so simple-minded, they had the experience of seeing the reality of the professional scene so that it wasn't a completely foreign entity to them, and they had a doorway to enter it. Uh, they had a mentor, a leader, to bring them into it, you know. So, um, in 1990, uh, there was a big uh, recession and, and um, issue uh, in the state of Massachusetts, particularly the, uh, the uh, first tech bubble burst, and Massachusetts was in big trouble. And the state school, they started insisting that uh, uh, there, there be, in, in uh, humanities and fine arts, there be some aspect to the education that was about the actual careers that were going to develop out of that. And that opened the door for me to come in. It's amazing they let you do that. Well, it was... that was so it was, experimental. It was experimental. It was a moment. The only reason that the program got to happen was because there was this mandate that something had to be developed that showed that art could have a career, and there was no one else in there who, who really knew what to do about that. I just want to say what it is, because people might not that you created a, an outreach class where graduate students from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, would come to the city once a week, meet with you in your studio in Chelsea, you'd give them a little lecture about some aspects about the New York art world, go see some shows, exhibitions, introduce them to the galleries. The gallerists would talk to the students and then you'd take them to an artist's studio and the artist would talk about living in New York, navigating the system, being an artist. Most of the artists, you know, had some serious careers. They had some experience. They weren't all like famous, but they all were surviving and thriving as artists. It was just amazing. I mean, it worked. You kind of figured out the algorithm underneath the whole system. Yeah, I knew it would work it just, <laughs> because just, uh, I chose people that who had who were a different. Some were stars, some were just beginning. Some had been here ten years and weren't rec. You know, I, I wanted a range of people uh, so that the students could see a reality about, like, if they were to make this decision, what kind of life could they expect to have? And so I wanted to try to give. You know, I wanted to show a really successful person and I wanted to show a person who was struggling and just trying to get going and so forth to give the students some realistic notion of, uh, you know, what could be. And it did work, uh, uh, especially in the, around the period of time when you were a student, around that ten, 10 years around there, a lot of young people came to New York. Uh, and started their careers, had a great and there's a lot of terrific young artists here. I mean, this should really be an aspect of any university education, that the commercial center or the, the, the most active art center in the region should be part of the curriculum. I mean, that's one of the things I loved about SVA was, from the beginning, part of the program. Yeah. It wasn't just an art school. Right. Marilyn Minter was one of them. Yeah. Like, she would take you out to the galleries, yeah. walk around, that was the class, yeah. going to galleries. Yeah, to me, it's, people. Yeah, no, to me it, it's just lunacy not to do that. I just think it's to suppose that you're serious about training young people to consider an art career and not show them what it actually is. Well, plus, you have proximity to New York City. It's one thing if you're far away. 
But there are hubs all over the That's why I'm saying any region, like, any, like a university, you know, our kids, they drove uh, three and a half hours here. And, you, and they just did it on their own. That was the wild thing, too. Yeah. We would just like rent a van and drive yeah. down. I can't believe the school was... Somehow you slipped that I slipped. In. I, I don't know if you could do I that. I worked it out, <laughs> yeah. I worked it out. We were fortunate. And I don't even know how you even made the arrangements with the artists and the gallerists. They were, all were open to meet. That shows the strength. Of I knew quite a few people that, yeah. that uh, you, you can't do a program like that uh, successfully from the outside. You, you're, the, the leader has to be part of the, the people that he's, because uh, they wouldn't allow access. And so I could get into studios. And, you know, by the time the program started, I'd been here about 10, 12 years. So I had a good base from which yeah. to reach into. And I probably say, what, maybe 200 people, 200 young emerging artists yeah. went through your program, right? Yeah. Maybe more, I don't know. Yeah. Very cool. No, it was a wonderful experience, and it was, uh, it was good for me as an individual, too, because it kept me, uh, getting, uh, get me out of my studio and, and get me into other people's studios and talking to them and visiting and, 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 and that sort of thing. So. It had the benefit of benefiting you as students, but also it kept me more alive. So it's a way of, of teaching. Teaching can get so dead, you know, I mean, it, it, it can just die on the vine. And pro it, but the reason is it rarely gets challenged. Somebody gets a stick in their mind, a curriculum in their mind, what they're going to teach, and it nev it's never challenged. Uh, there's no information from the outside, you know, so it gets stale, you know. I can't believe you slipped that through. <laughs> and I haven't seen anything like it since either. There was a program for a while that was, from, it was uh, Big Ten schools from the Midwest. They had a building here, actually, and students could come in for a semester. Okay, that's cool. That was really, uh, but it died. It went, it, it, the program, uh, if there's any budget questions, yeah. like should we buy two more printing press or cut this program where the students go, they're going to cut the program, you know. So uh, yeah, my program went for 25 years. A lot of these kind of alternative systems, they're around for a moment. I mentioned Exit Art before. Yeah. And a lot of people probably don't even know that what that was. But that was one of a, a group of, what, maybe 15 artists run or nonprofit spaces that were in the city that started when were they, in the 80s maybe it was the, yeah they really got rolling they, they, they really got really rolling grew. about the mid 80s they started off really small low budget and they grew to powerhouses when i was here in the late 90s early 2000s these institutions were powerhouses that's right I mean, they were like you would apply to try to get in it was like right. thousand that people would try to get 20 right. spots and right I, does that still even exist anymore? Kind of. I, well, I, mean, I think uh, I know it, they're still around, but they don't seem to have the same—not the same kind of energy. That, that was this moment, right? The really high moment for that. It, it started in about '85. These these places, yeah. a printed matter bookstore, yeah. artist space. is still very active. Yeah. Printed matter still. Artist space still exists, you know, but it's it's different. It's, ABC No Rio, which was. But on if the we Lord. use like Exit Art as a kind of template, because that was like something that. You had a direct connection with. You were close to them. I was. And that on, was very unique. Yeah, I was on the board of directors there for a long time, and they're very dear friends. Papo Colo and Jeanette Ingberman were the founders of it. 
Yeah. It lasted exactly 30 years, and then uh, Jeanette was a victim of the 9-11. She yeah. got cancer from 9-11. Uh, and um, they, they decided, Colo decided that they didn't want, we had the opportunity to continue it on and become like a Whitney or something like that. And they wanted just to end it with their life span. Maybe that was good. I, yeah, I, you know, it was their choice, it was it, but it was, it was an extraordinary uh, experiment for 30 years. And it probably, if you go through the, the list of the people who showed there er, early on in their amazing. careers, it's just unbelievable. And their group shows, like a yeah. thematic group shows. Yeah, I don't huge, think anything like huge that group existed, shows. right? Like that was unique. And I haven't seen anything like that in some Would time. Would they have like 40 artists? At they least, were like, yeah. It was like, how, how long would each show go on? Like two months? Or? They would go on, they would be longer than the gallery shows. They but it was be. like, you know that show that they do at PS1, like yeah. once every four years? Yeah. What's it called? Greater New York? Yeah. That was like every three months. Yeah. Greater New York. Yeah. You have a new series of Greater New York. But yeah, there was a lot of energy in the so-called alternative movement. Uh, from mid '80s uh, up to about 2000, and somehow they were able to kind of gain power in the structure. Well, here's how it works. Yeah, yeah, tell me. In the '90s, when um, artists of color became an issue, to start institutions, the Whitney Museum in particular, I'm thinking of the New Museum, uh, the Alternative Museum uh, with Gino Rodriguez, and the Alternative Museum. Uh, there became a consciousness of letting more and more people of color into uh, these spaces. And they all called Jeanette Ingberman and said, do you know any artists of color? So she was like... She was central um, clearinghouse because Exit Art had a tradition of uh, making sure there was a really large percentage of, of, of people of color and women in every show. There was never a, a question about that. That was part of their mandate, that they were going to have these shows which included a scope of activity, not just people who seemed to be headed for the mainstream thing. They did a miraculous... Um, I wonder if um, the, it's a record of it all. There's a wonderful book. There's a book. Uh, what about on the... Internet. Is there like a whole? It, it's. Uh, I, I. I forget. It's ex. If you look up Exit Art on the internet, and there's a book that covers all 30 years. Big, it does. big tome type thing. Okay. You know, it's a really excellent. So that book. is two books. Is there a third? You I recommend before we go. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a third book? There should be a third book. Uh, Papo Colo is uh, here. He lives in Puerto Rico now, and he's starting a kind of a retreat-like thing in the rainforest for artists to come and, and do what we're doing, to sit around and talk about yeah, uh, theories. That's cool. and, yeah. I think that's important. All right. We, we did it? Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Peter Gregorio. Thank Gregorial. you for giving me so much time. Oh, hey. Really. And it's so good to see you. It's been It's nice. really a joy. I've, I've enjoyed this very much. That concludes episode five of the Vector Interview Podcast. I want to thank Jerry Kearns for participating on the project. It was an honor to interview him for Vector. You can see his most recent exhibition, Blam, at the Frosch & Co. Gallery, froschandco.com, um, and go see the show. 
if you are in New York City. Um, you can find out more about his work on his website, jerrykearns.com. I've posted the links here and on the Vector website. For more information about our current and future projects, go to vector.bz. And you can find us on Instagram at three underscores vector three underscores. If you like the podcast and you're feeling generous, we ask that you make a one-time contribution for the episode. 50% of the proceeds will go to the artist. You can also support all of the Vector projects by becoming an ongoing subscriber on our Patreon at Patreon slash Vector Productions. I am Peter Gregorio. You can find me on Instagram at Peter underscore Gregorio. And if you want to see my artwork, visit my website at petergregorio.com. Javier Barrios can be found at JavierBarrios.com. And his Instagram is underscore Javier underscore Barrios. All of the music was generously provided by the amazing Liz Kosak. You can find her and check out her projects at zardcom.com. The title drops were provided by my comrade and interstellar traveler, the German artist Sophie Lindner. Thank you, MK, for help with research and writing. Our cover art is by Philip Grosinger. You can find his work on Instagram at philip underscore Grosinger. And a big thank you to our producer and editor, Todd Tracy. I will leave you with this quote by Jerry Kearns. Who we think we are is becoming more and more pre-digested, interpreted, and controlled. I saw that our national institutions and belief systems were increasingly employed as social control mechanisms. Entertainment was a soft baton whose marks do not appear on the audience. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Vector.